Thank you, Kenny. Woo. Good morning, Grace. How's everyone? Always good to stand before God's people to share God's word, but it's always challenging and confronting. You know, because uh, as, as my brother Philip said, no matter who's up here, God always speaks. Thank you, Phil. I appreciate that. Um, good morning to those of you guys who are in the sanctuary. We said that. My, my family on the patio, our families that are home watching live stream. When I say our family, I mean our, the body of Christ. It's just, as I said, a blessing to stand before you this morning. Um, sometimes I, I have to ask myself, why do I have a manuscript from which I preach? And it's because I have a short attention span. And so rabbit trails will take me. And so this kind of keeps me kind of focused on the text. So bear with me if you see me looking down and then coming back to you. But I'm convinced that the gospel is revealed throughout all pages of Scripture. However, we, we, we sometimes can run the risk of missing the gospel message in Scripture when we focus too acutely on a specific passage. And then by focusing too acutely on that specific passage, we, we fail to consider the passage in its broader context of all God has given in his word, all God has done in creation, and all God has shown us in our relationships with others. Not, not one of us this morning who's a believer and follower of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, not one of us would deny that we've been saved by faith, saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. But this grace is rooted in God's unmerited favor. It's not anything we deserve. This grace gives us what we don't deserve, and it allows us to have a hope of eternal life. I want us to keep that in mind as we kind of move through this. That this grace that God has given gives us our hope of eternal life. But indulge me for a second. I want you to raise your hand if you know what a quarter is. Like 25 cents. Okay, cool. Put your hands down. I had to make sure because in this day and age of debit cards and cash app and Bitcoin, sometimes, you know, we don't know what quarters are, you know. And I just had a birthday, I'm, I'm, and I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I just had a birthday on Friday. And I remember when I was a kid, wow, a quarter was a big deal. I mean, some of you guys may remember we could take those Mother Pride bottles and take them back to the store, and they would give us, he's shaking his head, they would give us a quarter, right? And, and we, for the quarter, we could buy a bag of chips. We could uh, play a pinball machine, get maybe two credits for a quarter. And sometimes we could get at least 10 minutes on a payphone call. <laughs> a lot of you guys don't even know what payphone is, so I'll leave it alone. But I digress. <laughs> I want you to imagine that you had a quarter in your hand, and I want you to think about what does it look like? Beyond the size and the shape and the color, what are the details of the coin? See, for most folks, when we think of a quarter, we think of the profile of George Washington that's on what we consider to be the front of the quarter. Above the profile are the words United States of America arcing over that profile, and below the profile, arcing beneath it, are quarter dollar. If we're really observant, we'll remember that to the left of the profile of George Washington is the word liberty, and to the right of the profile, we can read, in God we trust. But saints, how often do we think about the other side of the quarter? You know, what we call the backside. Do you know what's on the backside of a quarter? Most of us don't. As a matter of fact, in this day and age where coinage is becoming less and less of a thing, 
I'm not even sure that we care what's on the back of a quarter. Matter of fact, I was doing some little silly research as I was preparing. They've changed the back of a quarter like between 2004 and 8. They changed like 25 times, right? They put whatever they want to put on the back of a quarter. But anyway, (laughs) the point that I'm making is that too often we think about salvation like we think about a quarter. We focus on one side. We focus on what is familiar to us and we focus on what is talked about most. We focus primarily on God's grace. And this is not a bad thing at all, as evidenced in the name of our church, right? Grace, easy, free, right? But how often do we think about or even reflect on the other side of that coin? Do we, do we even know what the other side of the coin is when it comes to our faith? While grace gives us the undeserved love and favor and blessings of God, along with the hope of eternal life, it is mercy on the other side of that coin that causes God to withhold from us the punishment, damnation, and eternal death we deserve because of sin. One side of the quarter is grace, but on that back side of that quarter is mercy. It's grace that opens wide the door to God's banquet hall, to which we cannot even afford a ticket. But it's mercy that is the pardon that kept us out of the prison cell that we so rightly deserve. In our time together this morning, I'm hopeful that we will think a bit more about God's mercy. Our working definition for mercy this morning will be kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and afflicted, joined with a desire to help them that should be punished. Let me say this again. Kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted. That's me and you folks. Joined with a desire to help them that should be punished. Our passage is Luke 6, verses 37 to 42, and I'm going to read those shortly. But I just kind of want to walk through just the beginning of chapter 6 as we think about this because we've, we've heard a lot of good preaching over the last 20 years. I'm, a lot of good preaching over the last three weeks definitely on this chapter, right? And as we look at chapter 6 of, uh, of Luke, we, we notice that it begins with our Lord in a conversation with the Pharisees. It says, on one Sabbath, we see they confronted him about what, doing what they thought was unlawful to do on the Sabbath regarding the plucking and eating of the grains. His response to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, later in this chapter, we read of, of Jesus entering the synagogue and the Pharisees actually spying on him to see if he would heal a man in need. Jesus' response, he did. We go on to read about his calling of the 12 and his healing of the masses. And then still in the presence of the masses, and Kenny talked about this a few minutes ago, he specifically, turns to his, he specifically turns his attention to his disciples and he begins speaking to them. In the midst of everything, in the midst of all that's happening in our culture, in the midst of everything's going on, going on in our world, Jesus is speaking to us. Two weeks ago, when Kenny preached, He asked one of my favorite questions of all time. When we listen to Jesus' words, do we remember who is speaking to us? When we listen to Jesus' words, do we remember who is speaking to us? For all of us red-letter words of Jesus, Bible-having folks, you know, some of us, you turn red-letter. For the balance of chapter 6, we're going to be reading our Lord and Savior's words to us, his disciples. Our friends. He is speaking to us, just like he was speaking to them. My responsibility today is to take us through verses 37 to 42, 
But before we get there, I want to frame today's conversation in the context of verse 36. So if you can turn to chapter 6 of Luke and look at verse 36. That was the last verse that my brother Jason talked about last week. Verse 36 says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Last week when Jason Oaks spoke on this verse, he said, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, we can do what we are called to do here because we have this, this supernatural juice that we can lean into. Only Jason could have come up with supernatural juice. But when we think in terms of the command to be merciful, even as our father is merciful, that's not something that we can do on our own. So when we think of our ability to actualize this command of Christ or any commands of Christ that are found in Scripture or found in this passage, they're all, our ability to actualize this command is rooted in the power of Christ that we have through the Holy Spirit. Let mercy and grace then be the basis for our understanding of how to live out these truths as we talk about them today. Saints, we are called to be merciful as our Father is merciful. But I contend that if we don't think about the mercy, if we don't think about the other side of the coin, if we don't embrace what we've received from Christ, we cannot rightly bestow mercy on others. So our text this morning. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He told them also in a parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourselves do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the law out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Verse 37 reads, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. These commands that we have from our Lord are rooted in an attitude that's steeped in mercy. However, before we kind of walk through the passage, I want us to consider the first part of verse 37. This part of verse 37 where it says, judge not and you will not be judged. This is one of the most out of context used used scriptures in all of the Bible, I believe. We often hear believers and unbelievers making the statement, the Bible says you shouldn't judge others. Or, it's not my place to judge. And then furthermore, for those of us who who spend our time reading the Bible and we consider ourselves Bible students, it also seems that a command like this to judge not contradicts something else that Jesus said about us judging. So what I'm going to try to do quickly before we go any further is to try to address this and kind of, you know, not clean it up, but clear it up. Because God doesn't need things cleaned up, but sometimes we need things cleared up. The word translated judge means to go beyond having an opinion concerning whether something is right or wrong. In judging, we pronounce our opinion and express formal disapproval regarding the words and deeds of others. Wow. Think about that. We pronounce our opinion and then we express formal disapproval. I don't like that. As a matter of fact, I don't like that. I'm going to let everybody know I don't like that. If we consider this statement about judging in a vacuum... Because we have a fallen nature, 
and are selfish in our disposition, judging others in that context could potentially be problematic and possibly unbiblical. But fortunately, we have John chapter 7, verse 24, to contextualize this statement about judgment. In John's passage, we read the same Jesus, who the words are in red, for those of you out there that have read Letter Bible. This same Jesus is talking about how to judge. In John chapter 7, verse 24, here Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We remember from 1 Samuel back when, um, when, when King Saul was, had messed up and he was being rejected. Um, Samuel said, um, do not, uh, he said, because man looks at the outside and God looks at the heart and he kind of reminds us of that. But we have a tendency when we judge to look at the appearances. God doesn't do that. So we as believers, we're called to judge others, but we're also called, we, not also, but we are called to judge others in a right manner. Right judgment is aligned with God's standards his compassion, and his desire to draw humanity unto himself. John 7.24 does not contradict Luke, Luke 6.37. What it does, it actually contextualizes it. In Luke, however, we are, in, well, in, as believers, we are told in John, um, John 7.24 that we're to judge, and, 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 and we're to judge a right judgment, and we are to exercise a righteous judgment. In Luke, however, we're told to refrain from a self-righteous judgment. So one tells us a righteous judgment, the other says refrain. That's what we're seeing in Luke 6.37, refrain from a self-righteous judgment. A judgment that's based upon what we think, not what God thinks. A judgment that's based upon what we see and not what God says. A judgment that's based upon how we feel and what ultimately meshes with our personal belief systems, values, and worldview. That is a self-righteous, ungodly judgment. That's not what he's called us to. He called us to, if we are going to judge, we need to judge rightly, and we need to be seeing things and saying things and viewing things the same way that he sees, says, and views them. So back to our scheduled programming. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgiven, you will be forgiven. Given, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Verse 37 and 38, and we just read, they give us an, an indicative command and a promise. In these verses, Jesus is telling us this, not to judge, not to condemn, to forgive, to give, full stop. Not judge, not condemn, to forgive, to give, full stop. No commas, no semicolons, no question marks. Jesus is not providing these options as a drop-down menu and a questionnaire. He's saying, well, maybe you can do this and maybe you don't. Or if it was a Google survey, all of these statements would have an asterisk, delineating that they must be addressed. Now, we've given context about judging, but not judging, not condemning, forgiving, and giving, these are not optional for those of us who are believers. In total transparency, though, as I've read and studied and meditated and prepared for this morning, over the last few weeks, the implications, thinking through the implications of what this means has been really difficult. As I said earlier, it's been very confronting, and I hope it would be confronting for you as you would leave today and go back and just kind of think about that. I came to faith in 1986, and at this point in my life, I honestly thought I had certain things figured out. Not so much. 
When I read this passage saying, judge not and you will not be judged and condemned and, and you will not be condemned and forgive and you will be forgiven and give and it will be given to you. When I read and think about that and really allow, really allow myself to dig into that passage, what happens is just this. First, I realize I can't do any of this without the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't look at myself and say, Darren, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and do what God called you to do. It doesn't happen. But the other part, as I found myself digging a little deeper into the text, I found out who I was. And I realized that responding correctly to the Lord's command not only requires dependence on the Holy Spirit, but it, calls, it requires reading and studying and praying and fellowshipping and being encouraged by the saints and being challenged by the saints to get there. As I dug a little deeper, I recognized that I do judge. And you may do the same thing. We may recognize that we do condemn. We may recognize that no matter what we think, we're not as quick to forgive others as we believe we are. And then we also need to recognize, or at least I recognize, that I can do much better in terms of my giving. And I'm not just talking about my financial giving in terms of my treasures, but I can do much better in terms of giving my time and giving my talent and giving all the things that God has given me. So as I read through this, I'm convicted. But the beautiful part of this whole passage is where we started in 36, where it says, be merciful as your father is merciful. And so as, as, as verse 36 tells us to be merciful, in verse 37 and 38, we can see what I call a progression of mercy. You see, after imploring the disciples to be merciful, Jesus proceeds to tell them not to judge others in a way that only sees their wrongdoings and desires to keep a foot on their neck. Not to judge others in a way that just is going to emphasize their guilt. He tells them to judge others in a way that's going to encourage them. Judge others in a way that's going to be merciful. Judge others in a way that's going to point them to the master. In the song that we read earlier, the song that we sang earlier, His Mercy is More, one of the lines says, what father so tender is calling us home? Part of that calling us home is judging, right judging. And that's what God has called us to, right judging. Not so that we can say, ooh, gotcha, you're wrong, you're out, I'm in. But right judging so that we can say, God is calling us home. Come, wooing us home through judgment. So this progression, progression of mercy before this season in my life, or maybe the last month or so, I would have asked, what is the benefit? Or who, who is that guy that judges, judges other people in such a harsh, ungodly way? And then I had to say, I am that man. I think when we really ask the question, it's amazing that, 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 that light, as we get closer to the light, our shadow gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the more that we know about our Lord, the bigger our shadow gets until that day, that great going home morning, where we are consumed by the light, and there's no more shadow. But until he calls us home, if we're on this trek to know Christ better, understand you're going to be more and more disgusted with yourself and more and more excited about him. Because his righteousness, compared to our unrighteousness, it should be convicting. But going back to this, the beauty is that I don't have to look at my faults. And, and, and 
it, it's weird because that's a good thing in Christ. But when I'm doing this self-righteous judgment, the reason why I do a self-righteous judgment is because I don't want to look at my faults. So it's the same thing for two different reasons. Judge, judge not. You have to understand the context. So let's look at this progression of mercy that we see in, in these verses. Step one is the framing. In order to, to be merciful, well, in order to, to understand this whole process that we see in Luke, 30, Luke 6, 36 and 37 and 38, we have to begin with an attitude of mercy. Remember, our definition of mercy is kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and afflicted, us, joined with a desire to help them that should be punished. To borrow from Daryl Bach, mercy is the basic characteristic of the believer. And we don't talk about it a lot, as we said earlier. We talk about grace a lot. But, but this commentator is saying mercy is the basic characteristic of a believer. Just think about that for a second. As I think about that, it's like I need to be praying that God would help me understand his mercy as bestowed in my life better and then also how I can be merciful in the lives of others. As we purpose in our heart to model the mercy displayed by our Father in heaven, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can take a merciful approach to how we think about and interact with others when they have fallen short. So step one in this progression of mercy is to begin with an attitude of mercy. Step two, be slow to judge. As the basic characteristic of a believer, mercy means being slow to judge. Mercy and being slow to judge allows us to consider all the facts and think through all the circumstances surrounding any offense. Very often, once we know the whole story, we typically find ourselves less likely to judge. And as we hold others accountable... We are more likely to pray for them, love them, woo them unto God, and give them the benefit of the doubt. That's the heart of mercy. Step three, don't pronounce guilt. In the progression of mercy, this is the place where the rule of thumb is giving the benefit of the doubt, not condemning. In giving the benefit of the doubt, we choose to actually give one amnesty over acquittal. Now, this is wild. Because we're not letting folks off the hook. But it's a perspective that we have when we're talking about what they're doing. It's a perspective that we have of starting with an attitude of mercy, being slow to judge and listening, not pronouncing guilt, but giving them the space where, where the benefit of the doubt actually makes us think about amnesty over acquittal. And step four is forgive and forget. You see, mercy is over and above justice like amnesty is over and above acquittal. Where in an act of justice, one could be acquitted and judged not guilty of the crime with which they have been charged and therefore not punished. However, in this progression of mercy, we begin to see the other side of the coin of mercy and we get a peek at grace because it's grace that leads us to forgive and bestow amnesty. This declaration of amnesty is, is a full pardon for the offenses or the offense, the offense or the offenses wherein the act is forgiven, the wrong is no longer remembered, and the offending party is fully restored. Folks, this is unlike the Pharisees. This is unlike those who Jesus was interacting with. This is counterintuitive. It's not, it's not what our culture is calling us to do. Our culture is calling us to play the blame game, to point fingers, to say it's your fault. I'm not going to be responsible for it. But Christ is calling us to a higher standard. 
The final phase in this progression is learning to give. Giving freely and giving fully. Begin with an attitude of mercy. Be slow to judge. Don't pronounce guilt. Forgive and forget. And learn how to give. The through line through all of this, though, and, and I was wondering, I was thinking about this, and as I was kind of looking at some commentators, kind of understand some things, the through line in this progression of mercy, of mercy is the concept of reaping what we sow. When you think in terms of what, what the passage actually speaks to us about, it says, judge not and you will not be judged, reaping what you sow. Condemn not and you will not be condemned, reaping what you sow. Forgive and you will be forgiven, reaping what you sow. Give and it will be given to you, reaping what you sow in abundance, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Just think about that. It's easy to be patient and kind with folks that are patient and kind. It's easy to forgive folks that, that are forgiving. It's easy to love folks that are loving. In relation to judging, condemning, forgiving, and giving, our activity seems to set the standard for God's reaction in our lives. But this does not talk about our eternal judgment. We're not talking about a, a salvific issue. We're talking, to, we're talking to disciples. I'm talking to believers. And if you're not a believer and you're under the sound of my voice, we, we, we have folks that will be in this space that can share with you the good news of the gospel. But right now, to us as believers, he's called us to a standard, and there is a benefit to living at that standard. So, the rest of the story. In verse 39, it says, he also told them a parable. And this is a shift. Because we go from this, these commands of Christ, and then we shift into, okay, let me give you some examples. Let me kind of show you what this kind of looks like in real life. I've told you what you need to do, but let me kind of make it, make it clear to you what you need to be doing in real life. So, he told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will, clearly, you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your, to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. At this point in this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, he kind of holds up a giant mirror for them to see themselves, actually for us to see ourselves. And it's funny that humans, we have a tendency to love to look out of windows, but most of us are not necessarily as excited to look in the mirror because windows reveal whereas mirrors expose our flaws. We don't want to necessarily look into the mirror and like, ooh, I didn't know I looked like that. I didn't know I had that pimple. Darren, your nose is kind of, anyway. All right. Verses 40 to 42 consist of three parables, but they're actually really, a lot of folks say they're proverbs because of the wisdom that is given in them. And they're, and they're, and they're placed here by Christ, and, and not, I'm not saying, this, well, them being placed here help us to understand what Jesus has already said as we engage in a deep reflection and self-evaluation. These rhetorical questions and wise sayings provide an opportunity for us to take a look at ourselves and our lives in the context of the previous commands. And what are those previous commands? 
don't judge, don't condemn, forgive, and give. Couched in these Proverbs spoken by Jesus are also three subtle warnings. I'll give them to you, and then we'll talk about them, and then we'll be done. First warning is beware of the effects of spiritual blindness. The second warning is beware of following the wrong leader. And the third warning is beware of trying to fix others when we need to focus on fixing ourselves. He told them a parable, can a blind man lead a blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? Blindness in the Bible is typically associated with both Old and New Testament, false doctrine, evil practices, ignorance of God's word, and ignorance of God's, God way, God's ways. In addition, in Matthew 23, we, we read of Jesus chastising the Pharisees and calling them blind guides. This is like within 10 verses, right? He says blind guides. He calls them blind fools. He calls them blind men. Then he calls them blind guides again. And then he says, you blind Pharisee. And he's calling them this because of their wrong teachings and their hypocritical practices. But what's more encouraging than that is that as he's calling these Pharisees blind, and we understand that blind is, is being, is, we understand what blind implies, the beautiful part is just this. When we read the scriptures, we see that in the New Testament, at least eight times, we see instances where Jesus healed the blind. There is hope. There is hope for the blind. No matter where they may be, no matter who they may be, no matter what situation there is in life, there is hope. And those of us who are purveyors of mercy, we need to also be purveyors of hope. I heard a guy say years ago, I'm not a drug dealer, I'm not a dope dealer, I'm a hope dealer. And it's really about that's who we as believers need to be. We need to be purveyors of hope. But when I think about the fact that at least in eight instances Christ healed the blind, one other thing that I was reading is the fact that all the miracles, out of all the miracles we see in Scripture, Jesus is the only one that restores sight to the blind. Jesus is the only one that performs sight-giving miracles. That's encouraging. Verse 39 is referenced also, like when we talk about can a blind man lead a blind man, will they not both fall in the pit? We also see verse 39 referenced in the form of a simile, where, where sometimes we may see one person who doesn't know what they're doing taking advice from another person who doesn't know what they're doing, and we may hear a comment like, it's like the blind leading the blind. Although he's not specific as to whether he is referring to the disciples as being the, um, the leader that's blind or the follower that's blind, both of them are headed for destruction. When we say pit, we're not talking about a little pothole. We're talking about a mammoth hole a huge hole. And so blind leading the blind, they'll both fall in the pit. <coughs> I agree with one of the commentators, Francois Bovin, and his position on this passage is that as long as you are still blind, you probably shouldn't try to advise others. More, again, let me say this. As long as you're still blind, just you probably should not try to advise others. Moreover, to keep from falling into the pit, what do we do? What do we do? We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus, the one who has sight, the one who restores sight. And, and in, the words, in the words of Paul, we only follow others as they follow Christ. That's, 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 the, that's the first piece in terms of spiritual blindness. What we want to make sure is that we remember that Christ is our mercy seat. Christ is our source of atonement before God. He alone is able to keep us from falling. And as we follow him, we'll better understand mercy and we will be hope dealers. 
Second subtle warning was beware of following the wrong leader. It says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This verse builds on the concept of who you're going to follow. Some of you guys remember, might remember, but when I was growing up, there was a PSA, public service announcement, that encouraged healthy lifestyle, right? And it was a cartoon with a song that says, you are what you eat, from your head down to your feet. You guys remember that? Maybe not. All right. But it was a cartoon, and, and in principle, this applies to our spiritual health also. We grow from the spiritual food that we eat, and Jesus is warning the disciples <coughs> that they can only eat and grow from what is served to them by their teacher. Let me say this again. We grow from our spiritual, those of us who come to grace. Hopefully we are reading and studying on our own, but we only are going to grow from those who teach. If there was false doctrine in this space and we continue to come here, we would be embracing false doctrine. If there was, if there was whatever the case is, but this is the beauty, is that we only can go as far as our te- teacher is able to take them And my encouragement is that these teachers at Grace understand that we only follow them as they follow Christ. And they're committed to following Christ. So then consequently, when we begin to look at who is our leader, who are we following, we're not following Pastor Tanis or Pastor Gruendike or Pastor Randall. We're not following them. We're following Christ. They are under shepherds, but we're following Christ. And and it's funny because the best example I have is me in soccer. I love watching youth soccer, and I have five children who have all played. I didn't, but I coached. Think about that for a minute. (laughs) In the early days, I kind of coached the soccer teams like they were football teams because that was the sport I knew. Lots of fitness and aggressive defense. That's what we did. We even won a championship in AYSO, right, doing that. But it doesn't last. I couldn't coach much offense because my skill set was non-existent. Two of my daughters went on to play college soccer, and I would like to say it was because of my coaching. But realistically, they went on to become college athletes because I stopped coaching them. (laughs) I could only take them up to a point. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. If they would have been fully trained, they wouldn't have gone beyond U10 soccer. I can only take them so far, so at the age of 10, I had to release them to someone who was more knowledgeable and who could really help them grow. The second warning for the disciples is to avoid dad coaches. (laughs) Not really, but kind of. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the word incarnate and the image of the invisible God. Throughout the Gospels, we are told to follow him. As we engage in a regular diet of prayer, study, and fellowship, We will learn the way of the master so that we can not only show mercy, but we can fully live out what he's called us to. So the second piece is, like I said, beware of following the wrong leader. And the other side of that would be follow the right leader, which is Christ. Finally, verse 41 and 42. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then when you see clearly, then you will see clearly to take the speck, to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. As I was thinking about these verses, I was reminded of a YouTube video that maybe some of you have seen. It shows a little girl, she might be about four years old, and she's in the back of her dad's car and she's trying to fasten her car seat buckle. 
And the video begins with her repeatedly telling her dad, worry about yourself. Worry about yourself. As the video progresses, the dad begins to ask her, well, baby, do you need help? I mean, how can I help you? And, and, and he asks her kind of what she wants him to do. And her response is, you can help later. Worry about yourself. Finally, very agitated, she points to the front and tells him, you drive. Worry about yourself. You drive. I'm sitting here and I'm dying laughing, but really that's explaining this passage to me. The dad is so concerned about trying to help the daughter in the backseat, he's not focusing on what his job is. And what his job is, is to drive. And the daughter is like, worry about yourself. You drive. Kind of disrespectful, but the fact is the fact. (laughs) This video is a great reminder that as a friend once told me, I am a full-time job for me. So there's no need to try to be the Holy Spirit for someone else. Let me say this again. I'm a full-time job for me. So there's no need for me to try to be the Holy Spirit in my children who are believers, in the life of my wife, in my brothers and sisters in the church. I can't do that. Although this proverb is the longer of the three, it's the most straightforward. And simply put, the height of hypocrisy is my attempt to correct, criticize, or implore you before I reflect on the righteousness of God and my need for mercy. Before I come to you, I need to look in the mirror, see my blemishes and the log in my eye, and then address my issues. Only then can I focus on helping you. I'm learning that I need to tell folks less and pray for me and them more. I need to tell them less about what they're doing wrong. I need to tell them less about what they need to, where they need to go, how they need to live. And I need to pray more for me first and then for them. I need to pray because the reality is that the beam in my eye, it may be causing me to incorrectly assess what I see in them. And it may cause me to misdiagnose how I can help them out. And so the reality is just this, is that when I begin to say, okay, pause for a second, Darren, and beware of trying to fix others and focus on fixing yourself. Worry about yourself. You drive. You see, for the last 14 months or so, across society and even in the body of Christ, everyone is hyper-focused on other people's position and disposition regarding things that they disagree with. And I can name the list. I don't need to. I, like many of you, have some very strong feelings regarding these areas. If I led with my positionality on these non-essential issues, it would put me at odds with a lot of people. However, in these ongoing debates, I've tried to maintain a position of balance. The last Saturday morning, my brother, my brother Sonny, he helped me put into words. Sonny said, in these matters, we have to honor the conscience of others. In these matters, we have to honor the conscience of others. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but we have to honor and we have to love and we have to, we have to not judge, not condemn, forgive and give. I'm grateful for this wisdom that reminds me that I need to be more merciful. More importantly, I'm grateful that by his Holy Spirit, God is continuing to to expose my heart in ways that are uncomfortable, but beneficial as he is conforming me to the image of his son. I stand before you this morning ashamed but not embarrassed. Ashamed is an internal thing when I know I can and should and God has called me to better. Embarrassed is what I think you think about me. I'm not worried about that. Because if we all look hard at this law of liberty, we're going to be in the same boat. 
So I am ashamed, but not embarrassed. I am ashamed, but not, not embarrassed to admit that even as a believer, I have fallen short of Christ's commands in this passage. Commands regarding judging, condemning, forgiving, and giving. Nevertheless, my desire and prayer for the body of Christ is that we better understand mercy and see it as just as valuable other side of the coin. We see it as the just as valuable other side of the coin. I pray that we better understand mercy, that we might live better, that we might love better, and proclaim the Father's love to a lost and dying world. That's why we don't judge. That's why we don't condemn. That's why we forgive. That's why we give, so we can advance the gospel, so we can tell folks about Jesus. That doesn't mean that we don't tell them what they're doing wrong. But our goal, our hope, our ultimate is to be merciful, to draw them to the Father. I want to leave you with the lyrics of a song that I fell in love with when I first became a believer. And, and it's, this song serves as an ongoing reminder to me. All of you who are worried about me singing, you can stop. I'm not going to sing. It's a song called Goodness, Mercy, and Grace. It says, another day... I could not face. Without your goodness, your mercy, your grace. I could not live in this terrible place without your goodness, your mercy, your grace. Your mercy covers sinners too. Darren, don't forget that. As they go on their daily task, they don't know that it's really you and they don't even bother to ask. But your grace keeps right on covering them till you bring them into the knowledge of the truth. By your son, you can open their eyes so that they'll realize that it's really you. Be merciful as our Father is merciful. Amen.